This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay are joined by Happy Chichester of Hal and Maggie. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me for episode number 120 of season three, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, this is a uh, this is a weird episode for us because it harkens back to one of the few times where uh, we're going to do an interview, but you're not going to be a part of it. Uh, that's weird. Yeah, it is weird. You texted me questions to ask during the interview, so that uh, made made me feel like you were a part of it, sort of like you were my your, my hail uh, nine thousand from two thousand one: A Space Odyssey, feeding me information through technology. It kind of worked out well for me, Ed. If you you want, I could just keep doing that going forward. (laughs) Are you saying you don't want to actually talk to people, but you you want to contribute? Well, I could just, you know, nap or watch a TV show. and There you go. Shoot you off a couple questions, and then you can just let me know how it went. Excellent. So I am speaking of an interview that I recorded with Happy Chichester of the band Howlin' Maggie. They were a band, Jay, that you and I were both well very familiar with, going back to our college radio days. Uh, how did you first discover Holland Maggie? Uh, it's interesting because, uh, let's see, if you listen to the Satchel episode where we interviewed Sean Smith, I talk about how I found out about Satchel because of the movie Beautiful Girls. Um, mm-hmm. Originally, I was a Brad fan. Um, I picked up the record when it first came out, the first The Shame album. Um, saw the movie Beautiful Girls, recognized the voice of Sean Smith in that movie in one of the songs, and went out and bought the soundtrack for that to, to kind of primarily to discover uh, uh, Satchel and also for the Afghan Wigs songs that were on it. Um, and then I discovered Hal and Maggie as a result of that. So it wasn't, it was probably just prior to moving to Bowling Green. Um, and I think at that point, I sort of pieced together that they were actually from Columbus and well, I think the interview picks up from there in terms of our history with the band from that point forward. But uh, it all kind of came through Sean Smith, which was interesting since the two of them continued to work together. Yeah. Recently going on a European tour, uh, Happy Chichester joining Brad as a multi-instrumentalist on that tour. And uh, he's played with lots of different musicians outside of doing a solo record, which just came out this spring. And his work previously with Holland Maggie, and he'd worked with Greg Dooley as a sideman for the Afghan Wigs on some of their tours and played with them. And then also the three of them, Sean Smith, Greg Dooley, and Happy, worked together on the first Twilight Singers album. This is all stuff that I'm going to be covering in the upcoming interview. Uh, so we're not going to get into a traditional history of the band, or we're not going to do a regular old uh, record review the same way we'd normally do it. Because they kind of cover all that with uh, Happy in the interview. So we're going to play the interview, and then we're going to talk a little bit more about the record when we get back. How's that sound? Uh, good. Wake all right. Me up. I'll wake I'm you up. take a nap. All right. See you in an hour. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> Yeah, how you doing? <laughs> good, and you? I'm good. I'm sitting in my kitchen. Great, you can see I'm my spice there. rack over my uh, over the corner there. 
I'm over here by my piano. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. I want to. I want to. I'm sure you saw probably from the emails. Talk a little bit about the new record, and then our our podcast is focused on re- revisiting '90s albums, sort of 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 going back to that time and and digging out the albums that we didn't think got enough attention and and we want to highlight or ones that our fans suggest to us that we've never heard of and we want to you know give them a listen and see what they're all about so uh for me and jay this was a real this was a really cool opportunity because we were djs at bowling green um in the 90s and we got this record from we had we'd sort of heard about Helen maggie a little bit but didn't know where you guys were from and it was funny because you ended up being two hours away in uh in columbus so we just thought that you guys were you know this rock and roll band from another planet and then went and saw you in toledo at this little <laughs> bar i think frankie's. it was frankie's must have been frankie's right yeah and you guys came out i think you were i think you were dressed up a little bit for that show oh there you go <laughs> this is tunia she's finished eating my my cat might yeah, pop we, into the uh, screen. Do you remember anything about that show? Because I remember you guys looking really mad. Like there was a lot oh. of an- energy about you, and it wasn't necessarily positive. <laughs> oh boy, uh, yeah, yeah. I I guess that sort of makes sense. I suppose uh, it depends. Um, I remember uh, a Halloween show at Frankie's in uh, I think like '95, maybe or. Maybe '94, um, that early. Then, um, yeah, there. Who knows? We might have been uh, angry because there was no green room and uh, the stage is so tiny. I don't know. There's a, there's a whole host of reasons, but I do remember uh, one of those shows. There was a photographer there who ended up just grabbing me and doing a photo shoot, and I've still got some pictures from that. Um, so I don't know why I would have been mad. I mean, all, all good things seem to have been happening at the time. Um, it might have been the energy uh, just uh, that we yeah, weren't used to seeing a band that close with that much um, power behind them. Sure. Because you guys were really there's my cat. Yeah, yeah. He's just, hey. just going to be jumping in and out of the frame. That's, Excellent. You know, because it wasn't like seeing a, you know a, an acoustic duo playing. You guys were a loud rock band, and we were standing five feet away, and there was a, a huge amount of volume. And, you know, that was when Jerome was playing drums, so the drums were being pretty much destroyed sonically. And um, did you guys find that in clubs of that size that you could sort of feed off of the, the closeness for where as opposed to like you get on a big stage and you're not necessarily able to connect, you know, with the audience or, or get that sort of energy in such a, as opposed to such a small space? Yeah, I always feed off of a smaller, you know, uh, club audience right up in your face i i like to look at them i like to look at their uh mugs and you know see what their thoughts uh, register you know on their faces and that sort of thing always uh i always get a really odd sense of detachment if it's a really big venue you know one of those things where you're on a stage that's bigger than your house and uh you know and it's ninety thousand people and you can kind of see singer up on the jumbotron or something it's just very weird so a place like frankie's um I, the band before that that i was in royal crescent mob played frankie's as well i believe so uh that was a classic old school 
I don't even know if it's still there anymore, but uh, I don't think yeah, so. The audience, when the audience is up there in your face, I like that. I, I really prefer that myself. Um, one of the things I remember from that show was your, let's say, animation, um, which I would liken to if uh, if Iggy Pop and Prince had a baby. I think would be a, a, a it's sort of the physicality of your performance and the um, the soulfulness. When did you figure out, not figure out, but was that something that when you started as, I know you started playing music really young. Were you always that gregarious as a performer or did it take a while for you to, to sort of evolve into that? I, I guess so because um, as a teenager, you know, trying to, uh, learn and practice music in my uh, parents' house. Uh, I was subjected to all kinds of uh, ridicule and uh, 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 oppression, <laughs> repression from the family. You know, whether it was uh, you know dad or my sisters or my uh, mom. My brother left for college. He's older than me, and he left for college. So he always sort of nurtured and fostered the music, and we played music together. Uh, but I used to get all kinds of. Um, you know, uh, snide comments from my family about the faces that I would make when I was playing, you know, and uh, I had no idea back then that it was, you know, that I was doing anything at all. So I suppose that's just sort of an innate uh, tick or quirk or something, you know, uh, I suppose. And then, and then, you know, later, you know, I get feedback from audiences when I was playing piano and stuff, like how animated I would, I would get and stuff. But uh, as far as I remember, going and seeing live music was a little like that, too. Uh, I just remember, um, you know, being kind of young and watching concerts and just getting, you know, really excited and engaged almost physically, you know. Um, even now, uh, if I'm recording basic tracks or I'm in the studio and um, trying to assess playbacks, you know, you, you do a couple takes and you want to see which one's best and stuff like that. I generally can tell by my body. Uh, which one's moving me literally uh, mm -hmm. the most. So I think that that's uh, not something learned. I think that's something uh, in inescapably innate. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I wouldn't even know what to do. There's times when I actually, you know, like try to hold still and, and practice good posture and stuff and <laughs> requires some effort, you know. Right. <laughs> It'd be good for me to do, but. Uh, I don't really I just sort of like uh, I sort of get into it and go yeah do you ever find it hard to replicate I, I don't know if you do you play songs out live while they're in progress or before you've recorded them to sort of work them out and see how the audience reacts yes and in fact yeah I've done that uh, forever uh, this you know, you were talking about uh, early Hal and Maggie. There was a song on the album called How the West Was Won. And I remember um, doing a show in Dayton uh, at Canal Street. And, um, you know, we're I had a basic structure for the song. But I, I, I'm, I'm not at all shy about throwing props out there. And uh, usually, you know, again, that uh, closeness of the audience and their energy and... Uh, you get eyes, you, you can feed from that energy, and, you, you know, uh, the best uh, example I can come up with was doing How the West Was Won before it was finished and uh, in 94 in Dayton, and just uh, and getting some kind of breakthrough on some lyrics while we were doing it, 
and taking a mental note like, okay, write that one down. Later, I'd have to, you know, later to finish that one, I think I went to a hotel for a couple of nights or a day and a half and, um, you know, just, just write and write and write and, and, and work to, you know, just to come up with the, the words and finish it. But uh, I've always done that and uh, I still do that. Run the, you know, run the song by the audience. Um, I'm still doing that. I did it last week. <laughs> yeah. Uh, with a song. doing that and then you take it back into the studio do you ever find it hard especially with the vocal performance to capture the energy of playing live yeah without a doubt i mean there's all kinds of stories of uh people bringing uh people into a studio to try to get that interaction and that interplay of energy and audience and performance and everything uh I, I, I know a story about the, the uh, band Heatwave. Are you familiar with Heatwave? Uh, a couple yeah. of the guys from Dayton, Ohio. They had the song Boogie Nights and uh, you know, the Groove Line and uh, Always and Forever. Big, you know, like 70s kind of soul. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and their singer, actually, uh, I think for Always and Forever, he brought people in so that he could give that performance to the audience. And... Uh, yeah, that, that, that's always been a trick. There's a song on my new album where uh, I, I basically set up a little recorder. I was, I always have little recorders around, you know, mm-hmm. almost always, especially sitting around. Uh, and uh, I put up a little recorder uh, for one track in particular and just recorded uh, just a live take of it. And the performance I really liked, and it had that audience interaction. And I actually had the recorder pointing out at the audience so I could hear them, you know, later. And I ended up really liking the uh, performance, so I so I threw that into uh, the, the my recorder at the studio, and then uh, and worked to replicate everything that I'd done in that performance. And it was a real uh, roundabout way to get back to that very thing. So there's all sorts of modern uh, technology that enables, and uh, and that famous you know live interaction thing is that elusive um you know sort of alchemy that i think any recorder or any producer or performer uh is looking for 
Well, you mentioned uh, technology playing a part now. Obviously, there's a huge difference between the technology of when you recorded Honeysuckle Strange and then with the new album, uh, Torchwood Loop. Do you think that's as much a positive in the sense that it gives you all sorts of freedoms as much as it is a negative because you can basically screw around for months and months on a single song if you want to and not actually, you know, get to an end point because you can add 50, you know, guitar tracks if you want now, whereas when you're dealing with 24, you know, tracks of tape, you couldn't do that. You had to think about how you're going to put all that down. Is that, do you see both ends of it in terms of your production? Uh, yeah, I just mostly though I I mostly see the positive side of it. I understand. Yeah, you know, I've been in studios working with Pro Tools when uh, people say, uh, you know, real men erase. Um, you know, <laughs> it's, it's just basically take take us back to when it was like we were working on four tracks or eight tracks, and you didn't have that option of fifty virtual tracks to to comp and all that stuff. So um, I understand, you know, the, the the downside of it. It can be sort of like a uh, uh, a rabbit hole that you never emerge from, but uh, but again, you know that's that's a, another reason why I like to uh, run songs uh, o- over a live o- like run them for a live audience to get that sense of what is the song, what is the essence, what of you know uh, what of this performance and uh, structure and all these you know sort of. Uh, design elements of a song that what it's made of you know what what do you get out of it when you play it for a live audience that you can take back to the studio uh and and that's uh and and that to me is the essence and and then to uh you know to to get into like overworking something in the studio that's that that's sort of always been i think even even with a four track i imagine you know like the Beatles going from a three track to a four track. Oh my God. Now we can really go crazy. You know? <laughs> uh, and that was like what Sergeant Peppers was a four track album, uh, which is pretty amazing when you think about that. And, yeah. Uh, it's, it, it's just, um, you know, anybody can, uh, you know, can provide themselves enough rope to hang themselves. It's just really a matter of staying focused on what the song's about, uh, what the essence is there and what you're trying to bring out in the production. So I understand the question, you know, but I definitely only these days really look at it as a, as a positive, especially, you know, all these little gizmos that record so well. That little recorder I talked about uh, that I recorded the live t- take for uh, this recent album, um, to get that kind of a recording, um, even, mm, I don't know, 10 years ago, would have required a, a, a big setup and you know something really labor-intensive, whereas now it's really it's so nice to have something almost this size with just a little red button. You just push that red button. That's made for a musician. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's foolproof. Like it's enabling, yeah, absolutely. Yes. thing. Um, so I was looking through your uh, discography, and you've actually you've taken your time between releases. There was the two Holland Maggie al- albums. Um, the Honeysuckle Strange was in '96, uh, and then Hyde was in 2001. And then there was some time between that and your first solo record, which was Lovers Come Back in 2007, and then this one in 2013. Are you someone who takes? a long time to build up a, a large amount of songs and then pick from that what you're going to put on the record? Or do you need to like take time off and just chill out after you make a record and, uh, you know, sort of recharge before you want to start going back into writing and recording again? 
Uh, it's definitely not the last thing you said because I stay busy all the time. You know, usually the, the cycle goes, you know, you put out an album, then you go out on tour. And that was the case in 2007 when we put out uh, Lovers Come Back. Then uh, within a month, I was on tour opening for RJD2. And, uh, and, and then continued in 2008. I did another one of those with him and some other uh, playing. We did another like long run, a few runs in 2010. And uh, in between doing work with um, uh, Brad and, uh, and, and, do, and doing other tours, uh, usually it's a staying busy thing. And uh, again, part of my process is write songs and then try them out in front of an audience. And uh, you, you really get a sense of what works and what doesn't, or what's, you know, something that's, especially if it's something that seemed like a good idea and it's really preposterous, you know. <laughs> Those, uh, uh, those ones will reveal themselves really quickly if you're in front of an audience. It's sort of like, you know, running an idea past your friend and you know, like, before you've even finished the first sentence, you're like, oh, never mind, you know. <laughs> like, but you can't really do that with the song. So uh, I, I'm always um, writing and rehearsing and uh, and doing shows. And, um, and some of the lag time, I'd say, comes from just being self-produced and self-funded. Um, it, 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 you know, it's not quite as enabling as like the old label system where, or having a band where you just get everything together and you do all your pre-production and then you go into a studio and you bang it out. Um, I, I, you know, I love actually working fast and, uh, in the case of, uh, like the new record and the, and the last one, I, I will get into something where I, uh, I'll record a song multiple times. It's, it, it's only a couple only like, let me see, three or four of the songs on the new album, for instance, weren't recorded multiple times. So, like some of them are, you know, one of them I know is like the at least the fifth take that I did, like full production and stuff, because um, because I, I'm always searching for that essence of a song or of an arrangement, uh, an arrangement that will reveal more in the song than, say, a different kind of arrangement. Uh, in some ways, I'm... Uh, uh, slowed down by the number of choices. You know, I could do a keyboard version, I could do a, a guitar version, or a stripped-down version, or a really big production. So I, you know, I sometimes try to do all of them. You know, if I've had the idea, then I can hardly ever tell myself no. Like, don't go there. Right. Uh, the one, you know, this song called "Glamorous Town" on the new one. That, that I was, I, I had to just make myself like put this version out because uh, I wanted to go back and record it again. <laughs> I had this, you know. Uh, new approach that I wanted to take on the drums and stuff, and then I, and then I just said, no, it's time to prioritize and get this record out. I suppose like uh, being a one man band is uh, it keeps things at a slower pace for putting things around, putting things out, and then I stay busy in between, do a lot of touring, do a lot of extracurricular, um, working with like Sean Smith or something, or working with Brad, going to you know doing whatever. Uh, you know, it seems like fun or something that's going to be stimulating musically. Uh, I always, uh, I always make that choice. Definitely, if somebody says, "Oh, this would be fun," and you'll have fun playing music, then I'll, I'll go for it. Um, and you know, another thing, I like to, uh, like after we get done here, I'm going to go over to my studio and, and hit my drums for an hour. You know, <laughs> it's just something that's part of a routine. Um, and so for me, there's no like set time frame or anything. Um, it's sort of like I, I tend to follow my muse and uh, 
try to make that as quality of a relationship as as rewarding as rich enriching for me as possible and uh and try not to get caught up in in uh, you know expectations of this or that or the other in terms of you know because I'm I'm just sort of trying always to find what uh uh what magic I can out of a song or a recording you know performance kind of thing I wanted to go back to uh you mentioned Sean Smith and we talked to him last mm-hmm. year before the new Brad record came out. And then you went out on tour with them this, I guess it was past winter. You guys went to Europe and stuff. Mm-hmm. First of all, how fun was that? Did you guys have a good time? Or was it, are you reaching the point where you're getting older and you're like, I just want a really nice hotel. I just want a hotel room that it doesn't <laughs> stink. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I want to be able to load in easily. Oh, well, with Brad, you know, it's fantastic. You know, it, it was like... Uh... It was the most activity I'd had since July of last year when I was diagnosed with Bell's palsy. So I had to sit still for a long time and delay the release of my album. It took an extra, you know, took almost an extra year or something to put it out because of that. So uh, not quite a year, but at least six, seven months uh, to wait. So I had been sitting around, not uh, not able to do a lot, not able to get out. And uh, as soon as I was out of the house and and. and Seattle preparing for that one and then we were on the road I mean I was in heaven really truly in heaven because mm-hmm. uh, one I mean I love their music uh, and have always since the first record and two uh, I love everybody in the band they're just incredible uh, incredible people amazing musicians great to play with uh, and, and I actually felt like that was therapeutic it was it was like a, a, a therapeutic musical vacation away from Bell's Palsy and I actually was able to start whistling again, uh, like a few days into the tour, which I hadn't been able to do for like seven months prior. So, um, oh, cool. Yeah, I'm not at that point where touring is just like, ugh. It can be. It's just what you make of it. But definitely with Brad, it's not that way at all. It's I, I've never had a a bad time touring with Brad. They're just incredible. Now I know you did. You worked on. Oh, you guys worked together on on the first Twilight Singers album. Have you got? Have you ever guys ever discussed doing another album together? In, in that sort of trading off the vocals back and forth, not necessarily Twilight Singers album, but just you and Sean working together in that way. No, it's never, it's never come up. It's never been discussed. Can I suggest that then? That maybe that's something you guys should do. Sure. Okay. Well, no, I've I've dreamed of it because uh, you know one of my favorite things uh, to do as an arranger is to arrange vocals. In fact, back in Royal Crescent Mob days, they called me. They sometimes would refer to me as Silvio because I would start assigning parts. And uh, vocal arrangement is something that's really, you know, there's an art to it. And uh, after all these years, you know, I, I feel like I'm finally getting the knack for it. Um, though I always had a knack for it. My mom was a choir director. And uh, I once did a, a four-track long ago when I finally got a four-track. I did a, a four-track version of a, a Beach Boys acapella track off of uh, summer days and nights something it's called uh and your dream come true comes true and it's really a a complex vocal arrangement um and and it's you know that's one of those things I, i've dreamt of like you know we didn't really we didn't really do that on the twilight singers record it was it was pitched to me and sean as like we would be like this kind of group but uh um uh, you know the idea of doing that would be i, I would welcome it actually you know as long as uh we could establish some uh, ground rules going in, you know, like, <laughs> you know, like if the guy, if, if, you know, the guy who wrote the song, maybe he gets the, uh, 
and maybe he gets the final say so or something like that. So you don't get into too much of like a, um, you, you know, some kind of a wrestling arm wrestling match in the studio. It, it would be a blast, though. I think I think it'd be great. So. Tim, I, I recommend you call Greg and call Sean and put that bug in their ear. I definitely would be into it. <laughs> I'll, I'll work on I, that. I've even got some songs, you know, that I'd bring right now. Excellent. Um, I want to I want to go back to Honeysuckle Strange because my co-host actually had some questions that he wanted to throw at you regarding this record, and they're, they've been ones that uh, we've bounced around for a long time. The song "Easy to Be Stupid" that's on the Beautiful Girl soundtrack was that originally going to be a Honeysuckle Strange song, or was that something written separately? write songs you know for an album As, again you know like I hardly ever worked that way really although in the last record I did focus in on a certain type of song and a way of writing uh, th that was just all part of a big batch of songs that I had and uh, and the truth be told yeah it would have probably been on Honeysuckle Strange um, had uh, Ted and Amanda Demi not become interested in it uh, while they were filming Beautiful Girls, and uh, I'm I'm glad that it found a place in that movie because I, I still really love the movie and uh, and the song's kind of near and dear to me. It actually was written still when I was in uh, Royal Crescent Mob, and um, I've got a demo from around that time, uh, maybe just right after that, that I really love. It was more the production was more like uh, the Prince stuff that I was listening to at the time, uh, Drum Machine, and uh, there's something kind of a, a dark and uh, something, I don't know, maybe it's a time association, but I really like the 94 demo of that song. So it would have ended up on Honeysuckle Strange if it hadn't kind of been farmed out. Yeah, that's the answer to that one. That sounds like a cool version. Any thought of like putting up songs like that on like Bandcamp for people to check out or SoundCloud or something like that? Yeah, I've thought about that. I mean, these days running a record label with my wife, uh, we're always trying to think of ways to, you know, sweeten the deal for people to you know go for uh maybe buying your cd or something or you know we're considering putting this one out on vinyl in the fall and so anything you can do to sort of like you know basically the people who buy my albums i i love them because they're they're loyal and they you know and they uh are interested in little old you know uh me and my records so uh so like you know like we put out maybe if we put out a vinyl we might include a CD, a bonus CD with rare things or something in that maybe. Um, I've definitely had interest throughout the years from people wanting to hear demos and things and I've got tons. I mean there's a 
there's practically an entire uh, Lost Hal and Maggie album from between uh, Honeysuckle Strange and Hyde. Really? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, that um, there's, a, there's a ton of stuff, and uh, uh, some of it surfaced, surfaced later, and but, but a lot, I think the majority of those songs are probably just going to, you know, stay in, in the vault for forever, I guess. I don't really know. Uh, it, it's just that uh, at the time, um, I was, you know, writing songs and, uh, and just cranking. Uh, I wrote more songs in that two or three year period than, than ever. And, uh, and so there's a lot of stuff there. And, uh, you know, if I thought people were interested, I'd definitely make it available. It seems like you could do some sort of like a limited, like, you know, run of like 500 box sets where you put out like, you know, maybe only on vinyl or maybe even do a hundred where you could probably do you know, four or five records worth of just rarities and unreleased things and just put them out for the hardcore fans to digest, like myself, because I would be interested in hearing all that lost Hell and Maggie stuff. That'd be incredible. And, and that's an idea That's an idea that I've heard before from people, just doing like a limited edition vinyl run and, and something like that. Um, so, uh, yeah, it definitely remains a viable possibility, something that may actually happen in the next year or two. Cool. One of the other questions he wanted me to ask was about the single choices for Honeysuckle Strange. They were Alcohol was the first single, and then I'm a Slut was the second single. Is that correct? Yes. Were those your choices, or was that the label, or did you agree on that? I think we agreed on that. Um, yeah, we. I think we were in agreement that uh, the, this would be the, that those were the strongest candidates for for being a single. And uh, I don't remember any. Uh, kind of going back and forth at all with the label. I think that they were totally on board. For one, I think that when they heard Alcohol and I'm a Slut, that was what clinched the deal for them anyway. So I do remember um, uh, the A&R guys coming to uh, North Carolina where we were recording and David Kahn and Alan Mintz telling me that, uh, you know, we could go ahead and re-record I'm a slut if we wanted to, but they were telling me that they guaranteed that if we put out that demo version, just maybe mixed it better, even though I really like the demo mix anyway, but uh, um, they were saying, we guarantee it's going to be a hit. And I just remember saying, you can't, I mean, <laughs> all due respect, but you can't guarantee me that, you know, I mean, I appreciate right. the vote of confidence. Um so they were hot on those two songs anyway. I think that's probably the reason we got signed to Columbia. So did you have an album pretty much done, or was it just a few demo tracks that you let them listen to? Well, they heard demos that we'd been floating around. Uh, the, the two singles, though, were remixes of the actual demos that we recorded here in Columbus anyway. So 
there were three, I think three songs on that that uh, were all recorded here in town with uh, with a friend of mine named Tom Boyer. Um, and uh, and then the rest. So, we, yeah, we basically, to answer your question, yeah, we had the, uh, the uh, you know, I had most of the album written even before the, the, the you know, we even finished putting the band together. So, uh, uh, it, and that band uh, came together in July 94. 94 and uh you know by by june of 95 we were signed to columbia so uh we were definitely hit the ground running and ready to go and uh some of those were demos so i didn't have to write much more to finish out that record that's for sure i, I think i wrote two more songs to finish out that album now for the video for alcohol you worked with sam bayer who kind of has a yeah. big resume um, Sam Bear um, uh, was a uh, acquaintance of mine in high school. We went to high school together. Okay. And uh, and so he was coming through town and uh, uh, doing a talk at the Wexner Center, which is a sort of art center affiliated with uh, Ohio State University. And I, I went to see him because I hadn't I hadn't seen him since high school. And uh, and of course, you know he he had directed Smells Like Teen Spirit and. Um, you know, and Bowie by then, and uh, Smashing Pumpkins, and uh, mm -hmm. and Blind Melon, and everything. So I I, I, I went to talk to him about uh, maybe getting some help because uh, I liked what he was doing a lot, and uh, and I knew him from high school. So he uh, he came out and shot I think maybe some eight millimeter that day, but he was busy with other projects. The uh, the video for Alcohol was actually not directed by Sam Bear. It was directed by uh, Larry Carroll, who had been Sam's art director, and Sam oh. uh, referred me to Larry. Uh, and Alcohol was the second video that uh, that Larry ever actually directed himself. So I'm still grateful to Sam for uh, for helping me out and for help, helping the band out at that time because he was definitely somebody who had a lot of uh, you know resources and and energy and contacts and stuff and he was very generous with his time and uh and assistance well one of the fun things about the podcast is that we get to go back and watch all these videos from the 90s that you know we're on either in buzz bins or on 120 minutes or alternative nation or whatever you know program that they ended up on and there were some artistic chances that were taken with a lot of the videos i i know there's a I don't want to say a weirdness, but there is kind of a weirdness to that video. Um, have you gone back and watched it recently, or do you remember uh, the majority of the uh, video? Well, yeah, I, I remember it. I haven't watched it in a long time, but uh, but Larry, uh, the director, is actually a painter and an artist, and I, I believe he's got uh, I believe he's got works hanging in like uh, New York museums and stuff. Maybe like even the Guggenheim or something. I can't remember maybe where. Or, Loma, maybe I'm not sure, but but a bona fide, you know, actual artist probably. I don't know. I'm not. I don't want to assume anything here, but you know, he might have been able to just like make a quick buck doing a video for a rock band at the time, mm -hmm. so that he could fund his art. I don't. I don't know for sure, but he was a great guy, and and uh, and I liked his art a lot. So I was uh, I was very pleased that Sam put us together with Larry Carroll and, uh, and there is that look, you know, I think, uh, you're right. This, some of those videos have this sort of like telltale look, you know, that of the time. And, and I think that Sam, uh, 
um, has a lot to do with that. I think, you know, like letting the, uh, you know, it, like including the end of the tape reel of the uh, film reel, you know, there's this like, it darkens and, and then what that ends up being is like this like flash, you know, and then they, and then of course, like I think later they probably came up with some plug-in for, for digital video production <laughs> to, to replicate that, you know, but, but Sam, I think, I think he brought a lot of his artistic, he was always an artist in school too, like always drawing and, and, um, I think that sort of like came first for him or for somebody like Larry Carroll uh, and then doing videos was a, a way that they could actually market their artistic skills maybe. I'm, I'm not saying, I'm not, I'm not speaking for them, I don't intend to, but mm -hmm. uh, but from my uh, experience, these are people who definitely were artists first, you know, um, seems to me, that's my guess. <laughs> uh, I haven't gone back and watched a lot of the videos from the '90s, though, to be truthful. <laughs> oh, just... some of some of them are really, really bad, and some of them are really, really awesome. If you yeah. ever get a chance, uh, Magnet Magazine has a column that just goes back and looks at all videos that were on 120 minutes, and they put up wow. a new video each week, and they talk about the band, like what was going on for them in the '90s, and what ended up, ended up happening with them. And it's a really interesting retrospective. Because you know, obviously, 120 minutes did the more, you know, alternative and and edgier stuff that wasn't getting played during the day. You're, that was the stuff that was played at midnight. So there's a lot of really weird videos, and you're just like, I am sure Columbia Records or A&M or whatever record label put this out probably spent like a hundred thousand dollars on this video, and it is so crazy. There is no way that's happening today. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I, re I remember a few. There's one that uh, it wasn't really an alt rock video at all. Um, it was like this Miami, Florida dance groove band, and they had this they had the spaceship. And the, man, I, I I went out and bought the album, and I, I have to go find that track. It's just such a such a jam. It makes me want to <laughs> dance, and you know, like. But I don't remember a lot of these. I mean, I of course remember these like the B Girl from Blind Melon. That was right. a Sam video. You know, boy, that seems like uh, uh, that seems like something I'll wait and do when, uh, you know, when I'm like under the weather and can't get out of the house or something. <laughs> there you go. When we get an, when we get a nice March snowstorm in Columbus, that's a good time to do that. Yeah, and it might happen. Yes, it might happen. <laughs> um, one last question that that my co-host wanted to ask, and then I, I also this was something that was on my mind too. Long live Doug standing. We both. Mm -hmm think that that could have been a single maybe would have been failed a and our you know reps but or record label executives but there's a real poppiness to the chorus of that song and mm -hmm. we're curious is is that about somebody or was that just a story made up
definitely about somebody, and uh, and it was actually at the time discussed because that was the one uh, track that I think one of a couple that Columbia really hadn't heard uh, when they you know when they signed us, and when they did hear it, they, I think they were really excited, and, they, and I remember uh, John Lachey talking to me about the potential that that song had for a single. Um, it was a uh, song that I had written sort of in tribute to my uh, best friend in fifth and sixth grade. And, and uh, a couple of the first songs that I wrote, which was way back then, uh, I got Doug involved in, uh, you know, writing words. And we record on like a little cassette. I could always have, see, I've got cassettes around still. Whoa. <laughs> but because uh, I'm always recording things. But uh, but Doug, um, as it turned out, I mean, I, I had spent years and years and years looking for him to no avail. Uh, when I was on the road with uh, Royal Crescent Mob, every hotel room I uh, was in during all those years of touring, the first thing I would do when I got into the hotel room was uh, look up Doug in the phone book to see if I could find him. I contacted distant relatives from Schenectady, which is apparently where a lot of his family came uh, when they came over from... Uh, I think they were Polish, but uh, um, I'm talking years, you know, that uh, I, I looked for him to no avail. And it turns out he was in the Navy, basically deployed and unreachable. And uh, I found this out because thanks to that song, uh, I was I was doing an interview in Columbus on the radio and had been asked about that song and about the subject of the song. And, and I talked about Doug and uh, even put it, put it out there on the air. Uh, look, if anybody has contact with him, and you feel like it, call me, and because I'd love to, I'd love to uh, contact him and, and get get to see him again and talk. And uh, and sure enough, uh, a guy that I, that I had known and had known Doug in, from junior high, a, a guy in town who's a drummer, contacted me and put me and Doug in contact. So I got to see him. I don't know about like ten years ago or something. And uh, I enjoyed that because I had these um, comics that Doug had drawn in fifth and sixth grade um, that that still to this day I think are just genius. Um, you know, even if, they were, if these were adult comics, like not as in like rated X, but as in like right. artwork uh, artwork by a uh, an adult, I, I would still think they were genius. But to think that they, this was stuff done by a, you know, 10, 11, 12-year-old kid, um, just incredible. So I had made... I'd saved a whole folder full of these comics uh, from our childhood and uh, and made really nice copies to give to him. And uh, he was just blown away by that. Just, you know, he, he had no idea that I thought so highly of my guests. <laughs> Nor that, you know, any idea that I would have written a song sort of as a, tri- a tribute to him. Um, so that song definitely has a real-life subject. And, uh, and his name's Doug, and he's out of the Navy now. And, um you know, he was just uh, blown away that I wrote a song for him. Uh, I still play that song, too. Um, played it on the radio in Louisville last week with my band. Because um, a, a DJ there had used it as his sign-off every Friday. At the end of his show, he would always play that song. And uh, Cool. So it's kind of gotten a lot of mileage, too. I uh, love that song. So who's in your band now? Um, well, Carlton Smith, who played in Hal and Maggie in version 2, and... Uh, and also in Royal Crescent Mob. He's the drummer. Okay. Um, Derek Desenzo uh, plays bass, uh, sometimes guitar, does a lot of harmony singing, does whatever 
um, needs to be done in the song. He's that kind of prodigy of music and multi-instrumentalist. Uh, he's a utility fielder. He's, he's amazing. And uh, I've played with Derek for, for, for years and years as well. In fact, when I, uh, when I was too busy working on Hal and Maggie's stuff to go and record with the Afghan Wigs for their 1965 album, um, I recommended Derek, and he he went and played on 1965 in my place, and uh, so we we go back a long way, and we're really good friends, and we play we've played music together a long time. Uh, Lance Ellison, who also was in Hal and Maggie during the Hyde um, album era, uh, it, it plays guitar in the band, uh, and then uh, Jesse Barr plays uh, guitar and and harmony uh, singing as well, and he'll he'll grab a tambourine or, or whatever too, because. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's sort of the the deal in my band. If you know, if it's just like an acoustic guitar, and we don't need three guitars, uh, those guys are happy to grab a shaker or you know tambourine and fill out the arrangement. So it's a great you band me- too. Uh, you mentioned about Lance and, and Carlton being a part of Hala Maggie Part Two. Um, mm-hmm. What was the catalyst for changing over the band? There, you had the original lineup for. Honeysuckle Strange, and then you mentioned there was a lost album um, in between. Was it just a matter of because you guys were dormant for that period of time that people went off and did their own things, or or was there a conscious decision to make changes in the band? Um, no, it wasn't. Uh, there was never any kind of dormant phase. I was uh, writing songs and we were touring um, the whole time, and uh, toward the end of '98, uh, the, the drummer and the guitar player quit. Um, and then uh, the bass player who I actually formed the band with was having some uh, he was having some personal uh, issues at the time and, and things were just really uh, you know basically I, I had to start from scratch because half the band quit um, and my old buddy who, we, who I started the band with was uh, sort of not in a good shape at that time so uh, I called Carlton first I'm pretty sure and uh, and truth be told, you know, Derek, I tried to get him in the band then. So, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm still playing with a lot of those people. They're, they're that true blue, you know, uh, friends and musical uh, compadres and stuff. So companions, they, uh, that, that's Columbus. You know, that's sort of the nature of the music community here, too. Uh, even though Carlton doesn't live here anymore. But uh, a lot of the musicians that I've played with, I still play with. Um, and... Uh, so the, that that sort of uh, you know, I, I I didn't really even make any conscious decision to like reboot the band at the time. Uh, I uh, I know I spent like two months just playing my drums because uh, I just wanted to get back to after I'd been on this, you know, like I'd been writing songs and I I felt like I'd written some of the best songs I'd ever written in my life, and um, seems like you know. Uh, couple guys in the band didn't like the songs I was you know I was just having basically like a really difficult time with one of the guys in the band too he, he just was like <laughs> complete nightmare and um, and I felt pretty uh, um, sucked dry so when when he and uh, the other guy quit I just um, I just spent two Two months recharging playing drums, which which always makes me feel better. Um, and then I was ready to go again. And uh, the manager at the time called me and said, "Look, uh, we got an offer for a gig. Oddly enough, at Bowling Green, 
you put the band together and you got a nice paying gig. Uh, and so I said, okay, I'll put a band together. And, uh, and it started out like that. And then next thing you know, I've got them recording an album because they're so good. I mean, Lance and Carlton, um, you know, uh, Lance is, uh, one of those guitar players where as a, as a producer, I would always try to make sure that I get the mics and everything set up in a signal before he was done setting up because, uh, the the rule that I had for myself was like to always get to that red button in time to get his first take, even before he even heard what he was going to be recording over, because he's just that kind of intuitive, instinctive musician. Uh, I, I that second version of Hal and Maggie uh, was a dream come true of a band. They they were able to field anything that I threw at them. Totally versatile, totally game for anything and and excellent musicians excellent people we fell into a groove very quickly that was really productive the other version of the band was you know it was a lot of fun for like the first year but but you know we hadn't even been a band for a full year when we signed with columbia and that kind of sudden um you know elevation it's it, it just like it, it had a corrosive effect on the band and uh you know and and it just quickly turn into something that uh, I'll say it honestly um, like 97 most of 98 were like they were like the worst like emotional times of my life but I wrote some I, I wrote some songs that I'm still very very uh, happy with you know and uh, but the, but the band gave me fits you know at the time the, the honeysuckle strange version of the band was just like it was just too it was just too much, man. <laughs> they were just, uh, they were a fucking nightmare. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry to say. Uh, is that what, um, is that what prompted you to, of, well, I'm, let me put it this way. Did you avoid signing to another label so that you could start pop fly music uh, with your wife? Or was it that you just wanted to, you know, stay out of the whole industry that was sort of collapsing by that point in terms of the late 90s where, you know, a lot of the bands that had gotten signed were getting dropped by that point, you know, after one or two records. And it wasn't like, you know, you were allowed to get three or four albums under your belt before you were, you know, able to, you know, find your footing. Was that a conscious decision to just go off and do that? Well, right. I mean, I think that part of the reason that uh, half the band left was that I was... Uh, I was intent on exercising my key man clause in the co- in the contract and and taking a buyout because um, I had written a, close to like thirty plus songs uh, for an album and I felt like if we we're going to do an album we need to get on it and, and you know there's plenty of material let's get on this and work um, but I didn't feel the uh, enthusiasm from the label or from the band to be honest with you and I was eager to take the buyout form an independent label. Um, at that time, I mean, Pro Tools was not really consumer affordable or ready yet. It was mm-hmm. a couple years away from that. But I, I was foreseeing um, the rise of the internet and digital distribution. Still, a lot of idealism about that in terms of leveling the playing field and um, making it possible for smaller labels to compete with major labels. I mean, after all, I mean, I, I had already produced um, most of Honeysuckle Strange, or co-produced. So I felt like, uh, you know, seizing the means of production was uh, something that was affordable with this buyout. 
um, that uh, the label had plenty they could offer in terms of marketing and promotion and really being able to wage a kind of like hype campaign. We would have had to sell uh, millions of albums to recoup that kind of money. Right. So it was like the economics of the big labels at the time was on a much more epic scale. Uh, you got a lot more money to make an album, uh, but you had to uh, you had to sell like many many more copies to be able to recoup. Um, and I was seeing this uh, I was seeing this world where I mean we were already making an we were making albums for a fraction of what um, the the budget was at Columbia. You know, like they give you a couple hundred grand, and we're spending a fraction to make the album. Um, because we just go in and record, you know, we were already a band. We already knew what the, you know, you just had to get a good recording and a good mix and, and find the right mastery and stuff. So it wasn't like we had to spend a couple hundred. We had, there was no way in my mind, like, that anybody should spend a quarter of a million dollars recording an album. It just seemed really um, shocking to me. Uh, right. Even though I've been involved in some of those album recording productions. Uh so, so I was like, okay, let's take the bio. We'll form a label. We'll have enough money to, to do all the production, and uh, even you know possibly hire some radio promoters. Let's do this. And uh, the you know, I think that being on a major label meant more to uh, some than to others. To me, it was just like I'd already been through that with the Royal Crescent Mob, and um, it wasn't so much like for me, a feather in the cap as, as, as much as it was a practical means of getting music out there and trying to pursue success with the music. So, uh, yeah, I definitely want to, to, to try. You know, I saw this new era of music and digital distribution coming, the enabling of artists who could then uh, own the means of production and put out their own things. And, I, I, and I, you know, I really thought this is going to be a kind of renaissance in terms of music. And I, and I believe that there have been really brilliant, brilliant, brilliant albums uh, recorded that otherwise wouldn't have necessarily been funded and backed by a big label since then. Uh, and, and the whole, I mean, the whole music industry is like 180 degrees since those days in the 90s when we signed to Columbia. Uh, it's such a vastly different place. But one thing that hasn't changed, uh, or one, uh, one, one thing that I was certainly right about is that the, the, the cost is uh is like way way down it's forced a lot of recording studios great recording studios out of business um i mean i think abbey road now is like a museum I, I'm, I'm not even sure that it's an actual like functioning recording studio anymore. i think you're right it's really a totally different place now and uh and and definitely the the, the sharks have caught up with that idealism and and come in because now like the the, the percentage that you get to uh to have the privilege of them distributing your music digitally, which involves, I think, like an, a simple upload that anybody can do, is that as the artist and the producer of this content, that you know you're you're venturing with your money and your time and your talent, and and iTunes they and Spotify they deem you worthy of four one hundred of a of a percent, which is just insane. My my cat is just. <laughs> Jumped up on. He's the jumping mad about that. <laughs> no, it's like exploitive. Like, think about it, Tim. I mean, really, from my perspective as a as a record label or as a as an artist, the difference between Pirate Bay, who offers you nothing, and iTunes, who offers you next to nothing, is like 
oh, on the one hand, I get nothing. On the other hand, I get nothing. So let's just send our, you know, people who are interested in the music to Pirate Bay because at least there's no pretense of, you know, some like legitimate, um, you know, royalty rate. It's completely exploitive, and it's, I don't know why anybody would, you know, I mean, except except if you just don't know about that. But you know, when we first put one Oscar, that's my Ohio Players record, man. Whoa! <laughs> I just paid way too much for this copy of Pain. I had to have that. Um, but anyway, uh, <laughs> no, no, it's just insane. Like, you know, like Spotify. Um, you know that if I if I if somebody pays ninety nine cents, I'm not on there. But it's it's a deliberate choice because if 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 say hypothetically I was on there and somebody wanted to stream my song, I would get like four one hundredths of a penny uh, for that stream, and and it just like I would never ever make my money back. So I would rather just limit access, actually create demand by reducing supply and availability. Um, I don't know if it'll ever work. It seems like um, the market for music um, is there, but the willingness of artists to be completely, like, I don't know, uh, marginalized and insulted with royalty rates is, like, eager. And so I, I'm, we're just selling um, the current record um, through uh, our website and in local stores. Um, and it will, you know, it's very... It's possible that it will reach fewer people, but I'd rather do that. Um, you know, we give away almost all the profit to somebody who feels they deserve it for uploading it to some server so that people can just download it. It makes no sense to me. Uh, the music business is insane, insane, and it definitely is stacked against artists at the moment. At Hasn't the moment. it always been, though, in reality? No. No, 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 not, not, I wouldn't say that, you know, because, um, you know, I had got, I got funding for like four major label albums and, uh, I know the major label album system seemed very exploitive and to some degree it was, but to me it's like a, you know, it's a, it's a bona fide, uh, business deal. Like, okay, we're going to sink a lot of money into your band and th there's not a really high likelihood that you're going to recoup, but if you do, you know, I mean, and people get dropped from labels all the time. Even back then, I mean, Johnny Cash, he got dropped by Columbia. It's it's not it's nothing personal. It's just a business thing. But to me, that is a better uh, th that's a better deal. They're at least giving you an advance. I mean, uh, iTunes offers me less money as a percentage, and they don't even give me an advance. So it's like a worse percentage, and there's no good faith on their end. So I, I don't, you know, uh, I'd say that. So more or less, you know, you're right. It's always been that way, but but I've never seen it ever, ever worse than it is now in terms of just, you know, trying to distribute and uh, market your own music for indie labels. It's, um, um, you know, it's kind of a rigged game, and it's uh, and it's definitely marginalizing, and it and it suppresses music. And the great music is out there. Good news that. You know, Pro Tools and uh, and uh, these software stations you can record at home has enabled artists to do it uh, and and exercise their talent. They can do that, but you have to be like a hound sniffing out good music because it's out there. But don't find it, you know, necessarily on iTunes or Spotify or you know. There's I'm sure there's great music there too, but uh, 
but you know, I, I tend to try to sniff it out elsewhere. It's there. It's there. Well, speaking of great music, um, you've made a lot, and one of the, or actually, a couple people asked if there was any chance of a vinyl reissue for Honeysuckle Strange. Maybe come out. Maybe Pop Fly might get the rights to that and release that. I'm assuming that um, Columbia owns that. Yeah, Columbia owns it, so I, I couldn't do it if I wanted to. Uh, they did, you know, part of, I stipulated, I had this key man clause so I could, at the time, I could make all sorts of art, you know, like demands uh, as, as sort of diva. And I did, uh, I did uh, make them put out a vinyl edition uh, of Honeysuckle Strange, and I've got some copies of it. Um, the problem with it, though, is I think that they did it more as a symbolic gesture. I mean, this was 96 and uh, vinyl was definitely like it was falling off a cliff in terms of its right. perc- you know its percentage of uh, overall sales of music media. And uh, don't believe that they um, mastered it for vinyl. I think they I mean, you have to master it for, for vinyl to some extent. But I think it was a slapdash job um, because by the time you get to the end of side one and you hear you are, which is like, you know, it doesn't have loud drums and stuff. It just sounds terrible. Uh, the fidelity for mastering is uh, for vinyl is, is is a real art, and I've talked with engineers. The guy who mastered my last engineer cut vinyl and mastered for vinyl at the record plant in New York for for twenty some years. His name is Rick Essig. Um, some you know, and, and he is somebody who has the experience and that you know art artistry when it comes to uh, um, mastering for vinyl. I'm really glad to see vinyl coming back and uh i do want to do um i do want to do some vinyl later in the year uh for the new album uh as far as like the rights to anything from a honeysuckle strange that's one of the things that unfortunately i had to sign away in exchange for that big advance that we got and so i don't have control of those recordings anymore i've got plenty of demos and the uh, contract has gone long enough where uh it's gone beyond its re-recording restriction i could re-record any any of those songs now as far as the actual uh, recordings themselves, they they control that, and I think that they basically like locked it in a vault, and you'll probably never see that again. Oh, that sucks! <laughs> I have to pass the bad news on. You know, I don't know if they see a value to that, but I've continued, uh, and Popfly has continued to build a catalog. I feel like it's worth something, and you know, maybe Columbia would be persuaded uh, if there was enough, uh, you know. Enough people like you, Tim, in the world, and <laughs> uh, kind of make a create a ruckus and let them know. Well, we've hit the hour mark, and uh, I think this is a good point where for for wrapping up. I want to ask, what's on the horizon for 2013? You know, the, the album just came out last month, right? So, are there plans for? I know you've done some shows, but are there plans to do a full scale tour or anything like that, going out oh, to um, the West Coast or anything along those lines? We're gonna keep trying to. Uh, again, you know, that's that's the the big quandary with uh, being an independent. You know, you can uh, make records for cheap and as, as much as you can venture. Um, we're gonna to try to make it to the West Coast because I think there are a lot of interested people out there. Uh, we're definitely regrouping in June and doing a, a another Midwestern run. Uh, th- that's absolutely in the works now. We've got you know some of those dates are booked or tentative right now. Um, in the next couple weeks, there'll be a uh, an animated video for the song, the first single from this new album. It's uh, the song's called Motorbike. The album's called Torchwood Loop. 
uh, a couple of my friends, one of my old uh, friends from college who lives in uh, the West Coast now, uh, I, I studied art in college, and, and he's uh, really much more of an artist than I am, and he's done the anime, uh, he's done the uh, artwork and illustration for it, and then another friend of mine here in town has done the animation. Far my expectations. Uh, I think in this day and age, um, a lot of people hear music through YouTube, and uh, mm -hmm. and so I felt the need to do a video. But again, you know, you're venturing with, with your money and trying to do the best you can with limited means to create a uh, video. And I'm really my specialty is more like music, not necessarily production. But um, but being a different world and music business uh, taking the form of you know um, Facebook and and uh, YouTube. Uh, we, I decided to venture into that. So uh, expect a video in the next couple weeks. It'll be animated and uh, and really, really cool. I can say that. <laughs> and, that and that'll be up at uh, your website, happychichester.com? Yeah, yeah happychichester.com. It'll be there, and we'll probably put a link to it on the Facebook page too. Awesome. Well, I want to say thanks. This was really cool. It's been uh, about, I don't know, when did Honeysuckle Strange come out? 96. So 17 years in the making since I've wanted to 96. do this. Yeah. I don't know how, how many years that is, but wow. it's a long time. So, but thanks. <laughs> really appreciate it. And, uh, oh, thank you too. best of luck with the new record and, uh, with the tour in June. Thank you very much. Alright, Jay, so that was my interview with Happy Chichester of Holland Maggie and many other endeavors. What'd you think about that? Uh, really cool. Good conversation. You know, I think we knew a lot about the band already, but learned a couple new things. I thought it was really interesting to hear his point of view on the music industry, particularly since he's um he touches on it. He touches on some of those ideas on the record with rubbing the industry raw in three ninety nine. So the notion of uh not really feeling like he fits in with the sort of the the, the business model of the the major label and uh, the notion of you know just sort of maybe being a lifelong artist and just wanting to to, to write songs and sell them and it was kind of it was cool to hear that uh, you know that was something he was thinking about when they made this record 17 years ago and and really with the new record that you know it's something that he's actually practicing and is is living by and going forward with so it was kind of cool to hear that come full circle. Yeah, he definitely has his own philosophy. Mm -hmm. And w your thoughts about, I, I was most interested about um, some of the, I guess, the band politics that were going on when Honeysuckle Strange came out and then afterwards, stuff about certain members not being happy and I thought that was particularly interesting. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if, uh, I, I think it people, it might be, uh, people might be interested to know what the other members went on to do. Um, right. I think the two guys he's referring to, Jerome Dillon went on to play drums for Nine Inch Nails. Um, so I think pretty much as soon as he left Hal and Maggie, he moved out to to Los Angeles and eventually within a year or so ended up landing, landing the drum gig for, for Nine Inch Nails. And I believe he played on The Fragile and maybe something else. Yeah. And toured with them for a while. And then uh, Andy Harrison has gone on to be 
guitar tech, a touring guitar tech and roadie. So they've both, you know, found livings, you know, working in the music industry, um, sort of in their own way and, and happy has done the same in his own way, which is kind of cool. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's a pretty typical tale. I think of what we've heard from other bands at the time, you know, the, you get a big deal and some people let it go to their head maybe. And, you know, start, I don't know, having higher expectations and that kind of stuff just happens. And then there's a, you know, there's sort of like, uh, you know, well, you, you know, we know a little bit by being in a band, like you sort of go through highs and lows, you know, and it's all subjective stuff based on like a review you get or, you know, if you get a deal or what somebody in the industry thinks about you and your whole vision of yourself becomes sort of ruled by that um, architecture. Mm-hmm. So it's it's pretty easy for that to become um, pretty old fast. So I thought it was, you know, cool to hear, cool too to hear about the singles. I always felt that Alcohol and I'm a Slut, you know, while they're, they're good songs, I always felt like maybe those were picked because of like the lyrical nature and the, in the titles almost. It sort of felt like in the 90s we got, especially in the mid to late 90s, we got to this um, point where there were a lot of radio singles that seemed to be, you know, one of the key ingredients was to have some kind of, I don't know, you know, a, a, a song title or a lyric, a chorus that was, you know, a phrase that was a little bit controversial or, you know, a little bit sharp in terms of pointed, you know, stood out, pointed it a little bit. Yeah. And, uh, obviously, you know, a song called I'm a slut does that. Um, and it's and, an attention getter. Yeah. Yeah. And it sort of seemed like that was one of the ingredients to alt, alt rock hit at that time. So, I always thought, like, I always wondered if that was one of the the ingredients that made those songs get pushed over songs like Jawbreaker or Long Live Doug or even Three Ninety Nine, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. One of the and, the and I guess the last thing I want to touch on was that, um, and I don't know if this is ever you've ever felt like this about this band, but when I heard them originally, it was. Um, the track easy to be stupid like i mentioned on the beautiful girl soundtrack and the thing that really struck me was that vocally what he's doing it was so different for the time and it really reminded me of you know i i grew up in um with older brothers and i have one brother who's like 11 years older than me and he was really into um i listened to a lot of like jay giles band and like you know the rolling stones and like artists that were heavily influenced by like real soul and funk music mm-hmm. and interpreted that vocally in their vocal style in a very unique way. And I think that's the, the you know, I think listening to the interview with, with him, you know, a lot of the references he makes to the music that he likes is that I think same, you know, classic soul and classic funk stuff, but the way that he, he doesn't do it necessarily in a Prince vocal approach. He more does it in sort of like that Peter Wolf or Mick Jagger kind of way of like riffing and just there's a soulfulness to the way he delivers and phrases things. And I think that was the thing about the band that really stood out initially for me in terms of them being really different than than any other 90s band in terms of just his, his songwriting style and, and more specifically his, his approach to vocals. Was that something that you ever ever really thought about, or? Well, when you see him live, the the animation definitely reminds you of like 
a Mick Jagger, and you know, there's some other guys that are sort of classic emotive soul and R&B and, and 60s rock singers that mm-hmm. have a lot of physicality to perf- his, their performance. And that's what mm-hmm. Happy always reminded me of, of those guys that like, you know, they're constantly in motion as opposed to like, it's like the complete opposite of what you would say of like shoegaze where they're just standing there staring at their, at their shoes. He's always kind of moving and, and whether it's grooving to a slower song or, or, being energetic to an up-tempo song there's like there's just constant movement and you can't help but be in, in um affected by that when you see that when you see him perform mm-hmm. live so yeah there's definitely an element not only vocally but even you know like you're saying in terms of the performance and the just the under the underbelly of the song the the, the spine of the song the chorus song however you want to phrase it of funk and soul in Helen Maggie it takes it might take you a minute to sort of realize it because the way that, you know it comes across on the surface is you know alt rock but when you realize when you really dig into the way that things are structured and the rhythms that are being used and the attitude of it it's very much influenced by that and that's you know we've had this discussion about how those influences can get interpreted in rock music and i think there's different ways to do it and the way that they do it is the way that they do it the way the afghan wigs do it and the way sean smith has done it you know, tends to be the way that I like it mm-hmm. and the way that it connects for me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's a good uh, wrap up on this particular episode. Um, it was a real pleasure talking to, to Happy, someone I had met briefly a decade ago, but never really had a chance to sit down and talk to. So it was pretty cool to be able to go over, you know, this record and, and the whole history of the band and his career. So it was a lot of fun and, um, we're going to have some more interviews coming up uh, very soon. So uh, everybody should tune in for that. And, of course, if you want to suggest a band and an album for us to review, visit the Request to Review page over at digmeoutpodcast.com. And lastly, if you like what you heard on this episode, please consider visiting our iTunes page and leaving us some positive feedback. All right, that's it. This is uh, another long episode. We've had a couple in a row. I uh, hope we're not uh, dragging you too long on your uh, commutes or your jogs or however you listen to this podcast, but we do appreciate it. And um, we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. Ruth was all that Danny had in the world. She was not his bitch, she was his girl. She held him up to the light as though he was a diamond or a pearl. Ruth worked double shifts so she could float. But Danny, as he leisurely wrote, but the ship that was supposed to come in was more like.